0: Welcome to the podcast for First Baptist Church Granite Falls. Here you'll find out what God is doing through weekly sermons, Bible studies, and conversations. First Baptist Church Granite Falls is nestled in the foothills of North Carolina and is a gathering of believers on mission for the God who has rescued us. Find out more about our church at fbcgranitefalls.org or visit us in person at 12 Crestview Street, right in the heart of beautiful Granite Falls, North Carolina. Our prayer for you is that these resources will be used to help you grow in your faith in Christ and help you live on mission for Him. In your promise and your spoken truth and give. This morning, I hope you all came expectant and ready to see what the Lord is going to do in our time together here. Uh, before we dive in. I would love to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we will get started. So let's pray together. (sighs) Heavenly Father, we love you. We recognize that your name is above every other name. We recognize that no name is worthy to be praised, to be glorified, to be worshipped besides your name alone. Father, we ask that our gathering would find favor in your sight this morning. Lord, that our, our time together here would be a time that glorifies you. We just ask that Christ would be at the center of all things. We just ask that our worship would be pleasing to your ears. Father, and ultimately I just ask in this moment you would help and empower and embolden my spirit to faithfully proclaim your word this morning. It is your work that needs to be done here, not mine. And I trust that your spirit will continue to do its work because your word does not return empty your void. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and we thank you. And we pray all of these things in your precious and holy name by the power of the spirit and all God's people said. Amen. So, Jay, you all have been going through a series here um, called The Great Exchange. And it's been a fantastic series because it's been talking about what the gospel actually means. Right, it's this imputed righteousness because of Christ's sacrifice. When we are in Him, His righteousness is transferred onto us. And so I figured that to the message after this series, it would be fantastic to talk about Christian unity because when the gospel is lived out, that's great. We are saved, and that righteousness is imputed on us, which is awesome. Praise the Lord! But then what? Right, we're in Christ. Now what? So. Uh, I titled this message this morning, um, Christian Unity, because the New Testament, Scripture as a whole, but the New Testament specifically has a lot to say about unity. And I was, in my preparation, I was looking through and trying to figure out what is a great example of unity, and I came across this group of people known as the Moravians. The Moravians were uh, around in the 18th century, and they would actually revolutionize the missions movement. Uh, They were a small group of people who lived in Denmark, England, and Holland. And at the center of this movement was a man named Count Zizendorf, And yes, that is his real name, Count Zizendorf. He was an Austrian government official. And one day, he was browsing in a museum, just enjoying the exhibits, and he came across a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. And underneath it, on the plaque, the inscription read, I did all of this for you. What are you doing for me. And understandably, he was deeply moved by this, right? And so he decided on that day that he would actually step down from his role in government and he would pursue something in ministry. But unfortunately, um, his grandmother would never have approved. And his grandmother was a hugely influential person in his life. And so he didn't immediately resign. But eventually, At the age of 27, he did step down from his position in government because the spirit was continuing to stir in him in such a way that he could not ignore it any longer. And then right after that, he bought uh, property from his mother so he could invite these Moravian refugees to live on the property with him. And initially, things seemed to be going well. But over the course of time, denominational differences began to sow seeds of disunity among the people. However, Count Zizendorf was persistent. He refused to let division creep in. He was wholeheartedly committed to helping these people become unified in Christ. So much so, in fact, actually, that he created a document where he required everyone living on the property to sign it. If they refused to sign it, they'd be kicked off the property. If they signed it and then they continued to sow the seeds of disunity among people, they would be kicked off of the property. And over time, as the Spirit continued to work, the Moravians continued to pursue unity and eventually began meeting regularly for prayer. At first, it was a few men and women. And then it gradually built up to a couple dozen. And then over time, it built to hundreds and hundreds. And this prayer movement actually lasted well over a hundred years. And during this time, the Moravians began to send missionaries all over the world. They were so committed to getting the gospel to unreached people that actually some people sold themselves into slavery willingly. Others were imprisoned and dedicated their time in prison to gospel ministry. And interestingly, as we look back on history, the Moravians, are, by many, are recognized as the launching pad for the modern missions movement. And the question I began to ask myself as I was studying and I was, listening, I was reading about the Moravians is, what was it that was so special about them? They have the same Holy Spirit that we do. There was nothing on the surface that seemed to be super significant. But it was their unity. It was their continual pursuit of unity. Their unity is what allowed God to use such a small group of people to have a massive impact on the world. And unity, we know, is a major theme in the New Testament. It's present throughout all of Scripture, right? But the New Testament definitely has a lot to say about unity. And so, as we see in our text today, Jesus' greatest desire for his disciples is that they actually would be unified. So, if you have a copy of your scriptures, go ahead and open with me to John chapter 17. But before we get to our teaching text, I want to provide a little bit of context for our passage because context is incredibly important. In John chapter 17, Jesus is ending the, near, ending, the ending, nearing the end, excuse me, of his earthly life. This entire chapter is Jesus' prayer to the Father. And this prayer can be broken down into three main sections. The first section, Jesus prays for himself. He prays specifically that he may be glorified in the same way that he was glorified with the Father in the beginning of creation. And if we remember back to John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God, right? This is Jesus asking the Father to glorify him in the same way as he, was in, as he talks about in John 1, one, and also all the way back in the beginning of time and, and eternity. And then we go down to verse 3, and Jesus says something really interesting here. He explicitly says what it means to have eternal life. We can look together here at verse 3. It says this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent Jesus Christ. See, according to Jesus, eternal life is just communion and intimacy with God. The beautiful reality that we can experience that partially now, but not fully because all things haven't come to full fruition, right? We aren't in heaven face-to-face with our Father yet. Then, in the second part of his prayer, Jesus prays for his original disciples, the original 12, now 11. He begins this part of the prayer by saying that he has completed the mission for which he has been sent. And that his disciples are certain that the Father sent him because he completed that mission. Then we skip down into verse 11. And Jesus, Jesus utters some very powerful words. He says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. There are a couple of really significant things here. First, that phrase, by your name that you have given me, Jesus is equating himself with the Father. There was this type of language that regularly got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders of his time. It means that Jesus is given equal authority and power as the Father, and he is equal in nature with the Father. Jesus is Lord. The second thing. That phrase at the end, so that they may become one as we are one. Now, this is interesting. Jesus' vision for unity among his disciples is based upon his unity with the Father. Now, we can't have that same exact unity because we aren't God, right? But we absolutely can imitate that unity. The fact that we can't replicate it does not serve as a justification for us not to be unified. We are still called to imitate that same unity. And it's clear, Jesus' deepest desire as he nears the end of his earthly life is that his disciples would be unified. So, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called here in this place to to seek to imitate that unity. And then we get to the third part of the prayer, which is where we're going to focus our time together today in verses 20 through 26. And if you notice, in John chapter 17, the, the scope of the prayer starts to broaden. At first, Jesus prays for himself. Then Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. And then toward the end here, he prays for all of his disciples, all of the future disciples. So let's read verses 20 through 26 together. Jesus prays this. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Okay, so from here, we're just going to walk through this passage. And there are three main and significant observations, I believe, come out of this text. So let's look together first at verse 20. Jesus says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Again, Jesus here, the prayer is broadening in its scope. Jesus prays for himself, then for the immediate disciples, and now for all of the future disciples. The disciples that have gone before us, us disciples here in this room, and the disciples that will come long after us. It's really interesting. I genuinely believe that Jesus was looking down the annals of history and seeing all of his body and his greatest desire in that moment was for all of us to be united under the banner of Christ and under his name, under the very name that God has given him. And I just don't want us to miss this, because the reality is that Jesus is about to die and this very next chapter. It says that Jesus is betrayed, and it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus chooses in some of his final, close to his final moments, to pray for us, to pray for you, that we may be unified, that we may be one like he and the Father are one. He goes on in verse 21. He says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Okay, so observation number one. I'm going to make sure and see if I can get get this to work here. Maybe not. Thank you. Appreciate that, Preston. You're the man. Observation number one. Unity is our prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. Unity is our prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. This idea of oneness or unity is present throughout all of Scripture. And oneness was incredibly important for the Second Temple Jews and also really for the Israelites and all of the generations that would follow. Because remember, the Israelites were surrounded by many different polytheistic cultures, right? Many of, the, many of their neighbors worshipped many different gods. But belief in one God was the primary thing that made the Israelite religion distinct from every other religion around it and from the different belief systems of their neighbors. This was so important to the Israelites, in fact, that they actually recited a prayer morning and evening known as the Shema, reminding them of, the, of many different things, but the main thing was God's oneness. And we find the opening lines of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-5. through 5, It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The word for one here that we see in the Shema is actually really closely related to the one that Jesus utters here in John chapter 17. It's clear then that the unity between the Father and the Son is the foundation right upon which we are called to be unified here in the church. With one another, we're called to seek to to imitate that unity between the Father and the Son. And again, we can't reproduce that unity because we're not God, but we are still called to imitate it. But because of our sinful nature, this is going to look a little bit different. That unity that we are called to absolutely requires union with the Son and the Father. We cannot even have a stone's throw of a hope to be unified in this church if we are not first unified with God ourselves. It is absolutely impossible. It is not going to happen. It is going to be false unity. It will fall apart. There is no reality in which this happens unless we are unified with the Father and the Son. But Jesus says if we are unified, the world will know what? That the Father sent him. He doesn't say that the world will know that the Father sent him because of our well-reasoned arguments or our ability to articulate complex theological concepts or maybe even a really well-crafted and witty Facebook post. He says it is unity that will be a prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. See, complex theological concepts aren't a bad thing. Well-reasoned arguments aren't a bad thing. Our faith is a faith of reason. But Jesus says the world will know that God sent him because of the way that we are unified. God has chosen to work out his redemptive purposes through his people. And he clearly says that our unity will be a prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. So I believe there's one really heavy question that lays here before us today, is that do we believe that our witness hinges solely upon our unity? Our witness to the world hinges solely upon our unity. If we are divided... We provide a compromised witness. Jesus is very clear and very serious about this. Our unity is a prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. Otherwise, we're providing a compromised witness. Jesus goes on in his prayer in verses 22 and 23. He says this, May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and love them as you have loved me. This brings us to our second observation here, observation number two. The glory of Christ facilitates unity among believers. The glory of Christ facilitates unity among believers. We see here, it says that Jesus, he prays, I have given them the glory you have given me. The question we need to ask ourselves then is, what does Jesus mean by glory? Throughout scripture, glory typically has to do with God's presence, splendor, and majesty, right? Moses, if we remember back to the Torah, he saw the glory of the Lord and his face became radiant. See, a significant aspect of God's glory requires that he has to be experienced So then we come to our question here, Jesus' glory. Then what is Jesus' glory? It's the uncovering or revelation of his being, his character, and action. And by believing in Jesus and putting our faith in him, we receive his glory and enter into communion with the Father and the Son. See, when we are in communion with the Father and the Son and we are united with one another, the world around us gets to see the revelation of the nature of the God that we serve, Jesus Christ. And then this communion between us and the Lord and with one another, it serves as a foundation for our unity with one another. But, and also in these verses, Jesus says he completed the mission for which the Father had sent him. We have a common bond with believers all over the world today. Not just here in Granite Falls, not just here in America, but all over the world. We have a common bond with believers everywhere. We also have a bond with believers all throughout history. We are all united under the name of Jesus Christ, pursuing the mission of Christ, making God's name known on every inch of the globe. And see, there's only one thing that can truly bring people together, from different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, people with different political views, different denominations, you name it. There are hundreds of things that we could tie our identity to that will pull us away from one another and sow seeds of divisiveness. But it is the cross of Christ that unites us under one name and one name alone. See, this unity, this Jesus' grand vision for unity for his disciples is not based on our common theological convictions on secondary issues or based on our denomination of choice. We cannot, we simply cannot allow the enemy to sow seeds of divisiveness among us. There is way too much at stake. Our witness to the world hinges upon our ability to be unified. There's no reality in which we can allow the enemy to step in, sow seeds of divisiveness in one another, and make us here in this place have a compromised witness. The people around us need, this world right now needs more than ever before to see the beauty and the splendor of Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity to come together in unity and provide a prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus concludes his prayer. And some scholars like to call this the high priestly prayer, and I think it's fantastic because Jesus is is interceding here. He says "As Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Observation number three here comes from verses 24 through 26. And it is this unity comes from being known. The word known, if you look in verses 24 through 26, it appears five times in this prayer. And repetition means that obviously this word and this concept is something that is really, really important. In Scripture, this word carries a much deeper meaning than it does in our context. I could say I know someone and maybe only have met them a handful of times. Maybe even just met them in passing. But in Scripture, when it is used, it carries a certain level of intimacy. When Jesus says he knows the Father, right, it's obviously not a casual type of relationship. There's a deep level of intimacy there. And then unity within the body of Christ, then, also requires that we need to be known. It absolutely requires it. We cannot have unity without being known. We cannot possibly achieve unity if we keep everyone at an arm's length. We cannot achieve unity if we only pursue it on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. See, unity is cultivated when we gather together around the table, we share a meal together, and do the hard work of getting to know one another. Unity is cultivated on long car rides, around campfires, on road trips, in day-to-day life. In activities that may seem absolutely mundane, but here's the reality mundane activities serve as fertile soil for unity to grow. But it takes time, it takes prayer, it takes intentionality. Unity is cultivated when we are humble and we are vulnerable. See, unity requires that we take a relational risk and risk getting hurt. And that is very, very difficult. I know for some of us in this room, that is a massive step. But it is one that is absolutely required because unity comes from being known. Unity is cultivated when we stop viewing people as other. We live in a cultural moment where you're either one of them or you're one of us. There's really no in between. There's no long-form conversation. There's no nuance. It's either you're either with us or you are against us. But unity can only be cultivated when we stop viewing people as other. Leonard Ravenhill, he's one of my favorite pastors and, and writers, he says this. Church unity comes from corporate humility. Church unity comes from corporate humility. See, I often wonder what it would look like for the people of God to put down the proverbial sword. To walk forward in humility... And to seek unity with someone that they don't agree with. But we we don't agree with. I genuinely believe that there's way too much at stake for us to be mediocre here. Our unity serves, as Jesus says, as a prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. When when he says that they will know that the Father has sent him, why? Because we are unified. Our witness to the world is at stake. We cannot afford to be mediocre. But... By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to come together and provide that prophetic witness to an unbelieving world. And I think of the Moravians and their commitment to unity. And I want to ask in this moment here, are we committed to unity in the same way? God used a small group of people in Holland, Denmark, and England to revolutionize the modern missions movement. These people willingly sold themselves into slavery They were unjustly imprisoned and committed their imprisonment to the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. Obviously, for a lot of us, it's not going to look like that. But we all have our specific context, our specific gifts, our specific relationships that we have influence in. Are we committed to unity in the same way here at First Baptist Church, Granite Falls?